John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Let's read God's holy, inspired word together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Just pause for a minute on that. This, this, this portico, these, these colonnades, these porch area, 38 years this man was laying there, and it was full of all kinds of people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Let's continue in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. So he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating who you are, for making clear your character, your nature, who you are, that you come to those who are broken, you come to those who are in need of healing, you come to those who are sinful and self-righteous, and, and you, Lord, come and confront us because you want to show your mercy to us that we might be healed. And I pray that for everyone here, you would enable us to Give attention to your words, that we would, we would come to you, we would see your mercy even greater this morning, and respond to your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was thinking this week, you know, I, I'm aware at any given moment of different aspects of my failings, dis, different aspects of my weaknesses, different, different ways that I don't meet up. Anybody here ever, you ever have those weeks where you're just aware, different areas, you know, I I'm not the best guy, you know, I'm not the best, I'm not the best person, I, I'm weak, I fail, I'm, I'm not consistent. Anybody ever feel that way? You're weak, you're, you fail, you're inconsistent. 
when, when you have those times, what do you do with that? You, where, where is your confidence in those moments? And I was thinking this morning, what, what is your confidence? What is my confidence before God based on? When, when I'm feeling that way, the question for us is, is our confidence based on maybe our response to him? So if, if we've responded to God well that week, then are, we're really confident before God. Or maybe if we haven't responded to God, then are we lacking confidence? Or is your confidence to come before God to some degree based on your faith? Whether you have faith, whether you've been professing faith, whether your faith is strong. So if you're lacking faith, is your confidence to God, does that suffer? Maybe your confidence, it's, it's based on your sin or your lack thereof. And so, hey, I feel pretty good this week. I was, I was doing okay saying no to sin, so I feel really confident. Is your confidence based on those things? What if your confidence was based on whether or not you were self-righteous or self-sufficient? Can anybody here say, you know what, now, I, I, I did good. I wasn't, wasn't self-righteous this week. I wasn't self-sufficient. I wasn't self-centered. I wasn't self-focused. And you know what, I wasn't idolatrous this week. Can, can anybody here say, you know what, yeah, that's me, 100%. I'm, I'm there. If you are there, if you're not there, where would your confidence be? See, this morning, we need to see Jesus, and that's, that's something repeatedly that, that John does for us. He helps us see different aspects of who Jesus is so that we can see him and then respond to him in belief. And this morning, I, I believe that God would have us see the mercy of Jesus, but mercy in a different way. You see, Jesus, the, the main theme, the main idea that we're going to see this morning is that, that Jesus, he mercifully confronts us so that we might be healed. Jesus mercifully confronts us. He he mercifully addresses us. He mercifully comes to us. He confronts us in our brokenness. He confronts us and comes to us in our sinfulness. And he does that in order that we might be healed. The goal is that we might see his mercy and that it might give us confidence to respond to him in faith. Look down your Bibles at the first nine verses, really. What we see in these verses is that Jesus comes to this very broken man. I love, I love the scene that, that we see here. Look, look down your Bible. It says, after this is a feast of the Jews, Jesus goes up. Jesus is keeping God's laws. He is fully obeying God's laws in every way, even though he doesn't keep to man's laws that they've added. And so Jesus is going up to the temple, and he uses a different gate this time to go into the city of Jerusalem, and it says he uses the sheep gate. Now, I can spend a lot of time there, but that's, that's interesting, because that's, that's the gate where the sheep would come in, and they would be brought into the temple for sacrifice, and they wouldn't go out again. And so Jesus comes in through the sheep gate, and he goes into the temple, and then he goes to, it says, there is by this sheep gate, there's this large pool, and archaeologists have now unearthed this pool, and, and it was it was at least 250 feet long, these kind of double pools side by side. It was surrounded by these, these colonnades and these huge porches. These very tall pillars all around this, this, this pool, and they, they provided shade. And, and what the scripture tells us is that underneath of all of these porches, surrounding this beautiful pool, this wonderful setting, was really a setting of misery. I mean, look, look down your Bibles. It says, in these porticos lay a multitude of invalids a multitude you know i I don't know the exact number there is it thousands was it 
Was it hundreds? How many is it? But it's, it's, it's filling up this huge area. In that area, a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. Picture the scene as Jesus is walking in. The, the whole city is very full because this is the Sabbath. This is Saturday morning. This is when they're coming in to worship at the temple, and there's crowds all around. And then Jesus looks over, and he sees, as he's going in, this, this pool. And all surrounding it are multitudes of suffering people. Now, Jesus, he was coming to worship, so he could have just gone right past them. He could have gone into the temple to obey God, to worship God there, but he stops underneath this portico with multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. These people were completely unable to help themselves. They gathered together there because they were hoping for healing. They were hoping for rescue. They were hoping that God would meet them. These people, they were there because they were beyond the healing of mankind. They, they were there because they'd exhausted all hope otherwise. And from the setting, it tells us that, that they were there because they were hoping to get into the pool and be healed. But, but really, there wasn't a lot of hope because between this whole multitude of people, only one person, if the waters got stirred up, could get into the pool and be healed. So this was a hopeless crowd that was holding out hope that they might be the one with the lottery ticket to get in. And they couldn't even be sure if this water would be stirred up. Verse 3 and 4, they probably were not in the original manuscripts, but, but they are um, contextually accurate. And so the scribes probably added those in. In case you're wondering, you have different versions of the Bible. You're wondering, hey, why does the ESV not have verses, verse, latter part of verse 3 and verse 4 in the Bible? Um, it, it seems to be the scribes added it to a few other translations afterwards to explain why he says in verse 7, when he's telling Jesus, I've got nobody to put me in the pool. And so uh, you have an explanation there, which ended up in a couple manuscripts, but not the majority. But, it, but it's, it's historically accurate. They were waiting there for the angel Lord to stir up these waters so that they, they might get in. They were hopeless people, and there were multitudes of them. They, they, they couldn't see. They were... They were lame. They couldn't walk. Some of them were paralyzed. And in and, and that time, they would have been looked down upon as outcasts. They would have been invaluable to society. I mean, not valuable to society. They would have had, had been worthless. They would have seen that they had no contribution to society. And so they were gathered there. They were also not allowed to come into the temple because they were maimed. They were impure. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes there. And, and I love that he, he zeroes in. I'm not sure why. It doesn't say why he picked this particular man. But amongst all the multitude, Jesus knew this guy, he couldn't make it. He'd been there 38 years. We don't know if that meant that he was also outside the pool for 38 years. But 38 years, he had this disability, which is most likely that he was paralyzed. And so Jesus goes to this man with this seemingly hopeless plight. And if you've ever suffered with an illness or ever been sick for even a little while, you can know how that feels. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're sick with some debilitating illness that won't go away. And you can relate to this man and the feeling of wondering, will I ever get well? You know, for me, I can, if I'm sick for a few weeks, I struggle. This man's been sick for 38 years and it can feel permanent and it can feel like You've been left alone. It can feel like God doesn't see you. It can feel like God doesn't notice. 
And yet, what do we see? We see that Jesus knew. Jesus notices. And Jesus goes to this man. He sees him lying there. It says he, he knew that he'd already been there a long time. And so he asked the guy a question. And I'll think about this. This man is there with a multitude of people around this pool. And everyone knows, including Jesus, they know why these people are there. They, they, aren't, they aren't there to have a pool party. Okay. They're, they're not gathering together like, hey, hey, it's Saturday. We're not worshiping in the temple, so we're going to have a pool party. That's not what they're doing. They are there anticipating, desiring, wanting to be healed because they're hopeless. And so Jesus comes up to this man amidst the multitude of all these sick people, and he asks him this question. And the man's response is a little bit, a little bit like a grumpy old man. Because he doesn't really say yes. But Jesus asks him a question, and, and I can imagine I might struggle as well. Like, of course I want to be healed. Why, why do you think I'm here? So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? But, but really characteristic of Jesus, when Jesus asks questions of people about physical realities, it's, it's to penetrate our hearts so that we see the spiritual reality. So we see what he's really after is spiritual healing. And we'll see that at the end of the passage. But he asked this man, do you want to be healed? And he asked Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus he must be born again. He wasn't talking about being physically born again. When he talked to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and he, he offered her a drink and said she'd never be thirsty again if she drank of that water. He wasn't talking about the water in the well. He was talking about the water of eternal life that he offers. And this man, when he asked, do you want to be healed? I think he meant far more than just physical healing. So he looks at this man, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. Now look at a man's response in verse 7. The sick man answers him. He says, sir, it's kind of a funny answer. He doesn't say yes to the you want to be healed question. He says, sir, I, I have nobody to put me in the pool. When the water stirred up, and while I'm going down, another steps down before me. What Jesus is doing is he's mercifully confronting this man and his brokenness to see if he truly desires healing. See if he really wants to be made well. And this man, he doesn't give a faith-filled response. He doesn't say yes. You know, we've seen other pictures where people respond in faith to Jesus and they, they come to him asking for healing and they're saying, you know, Jesus, would you come? Would you, would you heal my son? This man doesn't even know who, this, who Jesus is. He doesn't recognize him. He's not coming to Jesus. Yet Jesus comes to him. And I love that because it's a picture, really, of, of how Jesus comes to us. When, when we might not recognize him, when we might not see him, when, when we might not be seeking him, when we might be looking to him in faith, Jesus comes to us in our brokenness like he comes to this man in his brokenness. And he sought this man out. And he wasn't daunted by this man being sick for 38 years. He's not thwarted by withered limbs or atrophied muscles from 38 years of disuse. He's not even reliant on this man's desire for healing because Jesus is coming to him to show him mercy. Jesus knows this man's been there. He knows the man doesn't know who he is and he's not going to respond well. He doesn't even say yes when he's asked to heal. You know how many of you, when Jesus comes to you and he says, I want to I help you in this area, you start to give excuses and reasons why it's difficult. Well, Jesus is not off-put by the... He doesn't hear a profession of faith from this man. He, 
But in the absence of any apparent faith, in the absence of, of any request, in, in this seemingly hopeless, hopeless suffering, with no end in sight, Jesus comes to him and his brokenness, and he makes the man well. John wants us to see that, so we see the character and nature of Jesus. So we see that it doesn't depend, Jesus coming to us doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our response to him. It doesn't depend on our recognition of him coming and being at work. It doesn't depend on, on our faith. It depends on his mercy. And it's a picture of utter mercy. Jesus goes out of this way to speak to this man. He knows his condition and he engages him. He is the one to take initiative, just like he takes initiative with all who are broken today. And at this pool of Bethesda, and I love that little detail that John gives. He does, there's no throwaway details in the Bible. The detail, this detail, the pool of Bethesda, it, it, it can be translated the house of outpouring or the house of mercy. And in this, in this pool of Bethesda, this pool that's supposed to be a house of mercy, Jesus fulfills the name. And he has true mercy on this man, even when he didn't ask for mercy. And into this man's helpless estate, he, he speaks a command and he heals the man. Look at verse 8. He says, he says to the man, get up. So how does he respond to this man's unbelief, this man's reasoning as to why he's not healed. This guy's not even looking in faith to Jesus. He's not saying, yes, I want to be healed. Please heal me. He doesn't respond to that with saying, well, fine. If that's your attitude, then I'm going to leave you alone. No, he speaks into the man's life a word, a merciful command. Just like Jesus speaks into each one of our lives, the merciful command to get up. Take up your bed and walk, he says. He didn't see faith in this man, yet Jesus spoke a healing command. And it says, at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus wasn't limited by this man's long-term needs, or he's not limited in any way by our long-term needs. And there's no delay, there's no waiting period for blood to flow into these dormant limbs and, and no, no waiting period for these muscles to, to grow immediately. At once the man was healed. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of immediate, overflowing, abundant mercy. Mercy that transforms, mercy that makes alive, mercy that energizes, mercy that enables. And that's what Jesus' mercy to us is meant to do. We aren't told how the man reacted. I hope, I hope he was happy. We, we aren't told what he did immediately in responding, but I can only imagine he must have been shocked as all of a sudden everything starts growing and he has muscles again and he stands up. He hadn't stood for 38 years. He hadn't gotten up for 38 years. And all of a sudden, instantly, he gets up. The mercy of Jesus is transforming. Jesus gives mercy, and he mercifully confronts this man and us in our brokenness. But not only that, he didn't stop there, because just simply to heal the man physically would not have been enough. Something far worse could happen to the man. And so Jesus, he comes. He doesn't leave the man alone. Look down your Bibles. Here's what happens and transpires. 
Verse 10 says, the Jews said to this man have been healed, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. This guy is still not, he's still not in faith, and he's actually blaming Jesus. He's not, he's not grateful and thinking, wait a minute, um, I got up because I got healed. That's why I got up, because now I can walk. No, he says, um, that man healed me, that man told me to get up, and it's kind of like Adam all over again. He's persisting in sin, even though Jesus mercifully healed him. He says, that man said to me, he's blaming him, take up your bed and walk. legalists though they didn't stop at the most important part of this man's response the jews they didn't say why then how then are you healed no they focus on him walking with his bedroll and what we see is 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 jesus confronting not only the legalists but jesus actually confronting this man in the midst of our sinfulness and the midst of his sinfulness and that's what he does for us as well jesus confronts us not only in our brokenness, but in our sinfulness, because simply to heal us physically would not be good enough. Jesus is after something far deeper. These Jews, they they see that this man has been healed, and they're not surprised he's been healed. Or if they are, they don't show it. They're They're not thinking, well, who healed you? Or how were you healed? Or Oh my goodness, let's rejoice with you. You were healed after 38 years. They say, no, why are you walking with this bedroll? You shouldn't be doing that. You know, God gave gave the law that said that no work should be done on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be kept holy. And what that really meant was that they're not to be engaged in their normal occupation. It didn't mean they weren't supposed to do anything at all. Just don't be engaged in what you're normally doing for work on the Sabbath day. Um, Take a rest from your work and honor God. And so this man obviously was not a bed maker. He wasn't a furniture mover. You know, it wasn't um, one man in a bedroll. He didn't have a business. But the letter of the law that they had put in place, it, it dominated the spirit of the law. They, they were more concerned with this outward conformity than with a heart towards God. The law, it was meant to display God's grace, his goodness, his mercy, and yet they'd removed any grace with their laws. And they were more interested in upholding their oral traditions than they were in responding to the mercy of God and showing kindness to this man. And yet the mercy of God is meant to actually affect us so that then in turn we show mercy and kindness to others. They needed to see the mercy of Jesus, and yet their legalism kept them from seeing the mercy of Jesus because their legalism kept them thinking that that was the basis for their merit to come before God. They thought that the basis for them to come before God confidently was keeping all of God's laws perfectly, and their, their confidence in their legalism, their rules, it kept them from seeing the mercy of God and extending the mercy of God. I wonder where for us today are different rules that that we impose or thinking that we have to keep rules how do they keep us from experiencing the mercy of God and extending the mercy of God how about when we encounter people that we think are breaking our rules you ever have that happen when you have certain areas that are taboo for you as a Christian when people behave in a way that you don't think 
a Christian should. When they do things that you're thinking, hey, um, I'm not comfortable doing this thing, and you impose what, what your convictions are on someone else, and thereby, instead, instead of responding with mercy and kindness, you respond in legalism, and you're not experiencing the mercy and kindness of God because you've suddenly gotten into the place where you believe that you keeping your convictions, you keeping your traditions, that's the basis for your confidence. And you think, how dare they? How could they? How could they vote for that political party? How could they have that thought? How could they believe that thing? How could they do this? How could they do that? How could they, whatever is in your mind, fill in the blank? Anybody here have those taboo areas where you struggle with other people having liberty in areas that you believe that Christians shouldn't have liberty? Anybody have those issues and problems? Come on, you got to be honest here. Anybody have any preferences that you have a fellow believer that they go against those preferences and those convictions and you doubt whether they're really Christian? You ever have that happen? Come on, I do. Especially if you're on Facebook. And yet, what that's a sign of is that you've let the law become your guide instead of mercy Instead of the mercy of God, instead of you saying that the mercy of God is the means by which you have confidence to come before God, you think it's you keeping these laws, and so you think that other people violating these things, they surely can't come to God. And you forget that God has mercy on all of us as sinners. He has mercy on all of us in the midst of our brokenness and sin. And once you get that, he will enable you to extend mercy as well. They were more concerned with outward conformity than with a heart towards God. They missed the most important things, and they focused on their own ideas of what pleasing God meant, conformity to a standard that God hadn't even given explicitly. You ever have standards like that? You know what legalism does? It it does this. It negates the mercy of God and fails to respond to others in light of God's mercy. Instead, here's how they responded in verse 12. They said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Who is that guy? We're going to make him pay. We're going to hold him accountable. We're going to punish this man. But instead of caring, instead of asking who was who healed him and asking the right questions, instead of seeing that God had had mercy on this man and extending mercy and grace, they wanted to go after him. Now, look, look at verse 13. This guy who was healed, he still didn't know who healed him. Now that says something about him too, right? Not only after he's healed does he blame the guy who healed him. So he's healed. He takes up his bed. He starts walking, and, and they confront him. And instead he's like, that guy told me to do it. It's his fault. You would hope for a little more gratitude than that, right? But he's human like us. And then they ask him, who healed you? He, he doesn't know who healed him because... He, he is so self-centered that he didn't stop and say, thank you, who are you? Why did you heal me? The, the, the most basic questions that you would think would be on his lips immediately after being healed, he, he obviously didn't ask. And he was so self-centered that Jesus was able to slip away and this guy didn't even notice. Like the way that John Stott puts it, he says, in his ignorance, he represents the great mass of our race who don't acknowledge or worship God, and yet daily receive his benefits of health and strength. 
the providential ordering of the universe, the protection afforded by the order of human society, the, the daily restraining of the full potential evil in the world, the full effects of the fall in personal life to say nothing of the patience with which God delays the day of his just judgments. We're all too often like this man in his ignorance. God's merciful to us, and so often we don't respond in worship. Jesus, though, he doesn't leave the man in his ignorance. He, he mercifully confronts this man in his sinfulness. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I don't think of confrontation as merciful. And yet, Jesus, if he were to leave this man in his sin, it would be the, the worst thing ever for this man. If he were to leave us in our sin, it would be the worst thing for us because he's more concerned about rescuing us from our sin, confronting our sins so we might respond and be healed than he is about the physical, temporal. And so it says Jesus afterwards, he finds him in the temple. Look down at verse 14. He says, see, you're well. What he's saying is, see, I've had mercy on you. And then what should his response be to that mercy? Jesus is confronting him. He's mercifully confronting him in his sinfulness. He says, you're well. I've had mercy on you. I've healed you. So, sin no more. Just like the response he gives so often in the Gospels, go and sin no more. We see the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. We see this man here, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And there's, there's two things happening here. There's, in the Bible... Jesus confronts the idea in other places, and later on in John, we'll see he confronts the idea that, that physical maladies are, are always caused by our sin. He says, no, just a product of <coughs> being in a sinful world. But in this man's case, he leaves that door open and says, yeah, sometimes it, it can be. In this man's case, it seems as, as if he, he is sick because he's lived a sinful life. But then he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And you think, well, what's worse than being paralyzed? Jesus is obviously speaking of, of judgment. Go and sin no more so that what is truly worse, the final judgment might not happen to you. This man still had not yet responded. And Jesus came to him in his brokenness, came to him in his sinfulness, and confronted him. Why? So that he, something worse wouldn't happen. So that he'd be spared. Jesus came to this man not because he deserved it. The implication was actually he deserved his sickness. Think about that for a moment. Jesus comes to us even when we deserve what we get. This man wasn't healed because of his good behavior. Jesus didn't stop coming to him because he behaved poorly either. And he wasn't healed because he requested. He wasn't healed because he responded right. He wasn't healed because he had faith. He, he wasn't healed because he, he got the lesson and responded. No, he was healed because of the mercy of Jesus, because Jesus comes to those who are broken. He comes to those who are sinful because he wants us to be truly healed from our slavery and bondage to sin. And we're not healed from our slavery and bondage to sin because of our good behavior. That should be cause for rejoicing this morning because I know that so often I lack confidence because I think it relies on my behavior. And this man, I realize that I am like this man. He responded to this merciful healing of Jesus with self-centeredness, with 
blame shifting, and yet Jesus continually came to him. And he points out the man had been healed, and the only appropriate response to God healing him was to sin no more, to repent, and to worship God by obeying him. Jesus took the initiative, and he takes the initiative with you. He's not left you alone in your brokenness. He's not left you alone in your sinfulness, and he does not. What does he do? Look in, look in verse 15. I want you to see here that Jesus actually confronts self-righteousness in this verse as well, because Jesus confronts our self-righteousness. The Jews, they were self-righteous, obviously. They were trusting in their own ability to keep the law to be acceptable before God. And so it says this man went away, and he, so still he hasn't responded right because he's tattling on Jesus still. In verse 15, he says, he went away, he told the Jews that Jesus healed him. And this, it says, was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The legalistic Jews, they were persecuting Jesus because he was healing, he was extending the mercy of God on the day when God wanted to extend mercy to his people. Some irony there. And how does Jesus respond? You see, they're not asking Jesus a question, these legalistic Jews. It's kind of funny. And, and, and in verse 16, it says the Jews are persecuting Jesus. But it doesn't say they asked Jesus or confronted Jesus or, or spoke to him at all. They were persecuting him. And Jesus answered their persecution. He saw their hearts. He said, my father is working until now. Yes, the Sabbath is about a day of rest, resting in God's work. But listen, God hasn't stopped working to extend his mercy. If, if God mercifully did not continue to uphold all things by his hands at all times, we would all be instantly dead. And he's saying here that my father is working. Don't think that when Jesus, when, when, when God stopped creating, that he stopped working. He rested from creation, but he didn't rest from his works. And you know that, Jews, is what he's saying. You know that. Because if God stopped working, you wouldn't breathe and nothing else would work. And so he says something here, and he claims something of himself. He says, my father is working. It's something the Jews would never say. They would say, our father, collectively. But he speaks of God personally. He says, my father is working until now. And he gives justification for what he does by saying, and I am working. I'm working because I am the son of the father, and I'm doing what I see my father doing. He confronts them in their self-righteousness. And he says, look, you're putting confidence to come before God on your ability to rest. The reality is you need to put your confidence in, in the work of God, in, in what God has done for you and God's provision. And by the way, I am working to bring about God's mercy. He established the Sabbath so that we might rest in him, rest in his work. And Jesus says, I am working. And I, I think what he's referring to there is Jesus is working to bring about his redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan that God is at work doing. When God is extending mercy to the world, Jesus is continuing to work to extend mercy. Not only that, though, he, he not only mercifully confronts self-righteousness, he confronts their own self-deification. He confronts their self-deification just like he does for us. Look at verse 18. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his father, making himself equal 
with God. They didn't want to accept the fact that Jesus is God. They didn't want to accept the fact that he had a right over their lives. And instead, what they were doing is putting their rules in the place of God. They were making their rules their source of authority. How often do we do that as well? And yet Jesus confronts us in our self-deification. And he comes to us. And he mercifully extends grace. I think this, this account is meant for us to see that, that Jesus is not distant, that God is not distant and unaware. He's not distant from us. He sees you in your brokenness, wherever you're at today. Now, the ultimate goal is not your physical healing, but he's not unaware. He sees you in your brokenness. He comes to you in your brokenness. Don't think that his mercy is dependent upon you. And don't think that if you remain without physical healing, that somehow he's not extending mercy to you. He doesn't give mercy because of your merit or demerit. He doesn't give mercy to you because of your faith. He doesn't give mercy because of a right response. But he gives mercy because he is merciful and he is working to redeem. This man was healed physically, but more importantly, it was his spiritual healing, so it may not have far worse happen. And if you have not responded this morning to the mercy of God in your own life, this message is meant to confront you. So you might receive God's mercy. So you might respond to him and say, God, I need you. I, I see that you're merciful to me. You've been merciful to me my whole life, and I want to respond to you, and I, and I want to respond and repent of my sins and then worship you in response. For all of us, he's seeking to confront us. In our brokenness, he mercifully comes to us. He, in our sinfulness, he mercifully comes to us. If God has corrected you, if you become aware of an area where you have fallen short of the glory of God, where you have fallen short of God's laws, his commandments, that is the mercy of God that you might experience his conviction and repent and have freedom to worship him in response. He mercifully confronts us in our sin. He mercifully confronts self-righteousness and self-deification. And we can respond to his mercy with repentance and obedience and faith. Our confidence, it flows from the fact that Jesus comes to us mercifully. He has compassion on us, confronts our sins, not so that he might leave us there, but that so we might not go and, and sin no more. We can be confident that nothing worse will happen to us. I love how Paul applies this passage in Romans 12.1. You can write that reference down if you have a, a notepad. Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's our motivation. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That, that's how we're to respond today is, God mercifully comes to us in our brokenness. He confronts us in our sin. Why? Not so to make us wallow in condemnation, but so that we might respond to him in spiritual worship, offering our lives as a living sacrifice to him. Amen? As we pray, I want the band to go ahead and come up, and we'll close. Let's close with you are good, if that's okay, Philip. Is that all right? Excellent. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for giving us this account, this picture of who Jesus is, of who you are, of your mercy and of your grace. God, I pray that we would recount all the ways you've been merciful to us, that we would see that you came to us in our brokenness when we weren't seeking you, when we didn't have faith, when we don't have faith, when we don't respond rightly, you come to us. So I, I pray that we would see that you mercifully confront our sins, whether that's through other people or through um, personal conviction by the Spirit. And God, I pray that we would see that that is your mercy. And Father, I pray that we would respond to you in faith, that we would have confidence to come to before your throne of grace, to find mercy and grace in time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.